Well, it is the sixth commandment on the way down, um, although we are working the other way. Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder. Now, that kind of seems like that's it. Keys can join me. Like, I don't think I need to convince anyone. In fact, I said to someone after the first service, I don't think if anyone was plotting murder in the service, my sermon would stop them. Um, it seems pretty obvious, and I think we can all agree that this is one we should be following. I mean, I'd like to think that's the case for all of them. We straight out know that it is wrong to kill someone. But we've probably all, like, to some extent, entertained this idea in our mind or maybe mumbled something under our breath. It's not like we fully intended to carry it out and actually take someone's life. But this whole, like, wishing harm upon someone, potentially to the point of death, is the unfortunate byproduct of a broken world. You probably walked in today thinking, this one isn't relevant to me because I obviously wouldn't kill someone. That sin is reserved for the worst of the worst. But I want to frame today's message in a way that Jesus addressed it in the New Testament because he spoke about murder in a way that I think hits a lot closer to home for us. Uh, he spoke about it being much, uh, equally as much a matter of the heart than it was about actually practically carrying out murder. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 5 from verse 21. Says, you have heard, this is Jesus speaking, that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell pretty serious. Now there are 283 times in the Bible where the New Testament directly quotes the Old Testament and it's really important that we take special note of those moments because it's kind of like a confirming weight is added to them. It's not that the unquoted parts aren't the divine word of God but that there's a special highlighting going on when they are quoted. Jesus is essentially saying look you've read about it, you've known about it, that murder's been wrong for a long time, for thousands of years. We've agreed upon that and we've read it in the Bible, but there's actually more to it than what you were originally seeing. See, the law that we read in the Bible wasn't just about navigating and, and shaping our conduct and our behavior, but it was also about transforming our hearts to be more like God. He's challenging listeners to understand that this judgment that's spoken about isn't reserved just for those that have carried out, like physically murdering someone, but that to even look upon someone with anger and hatred is to show disregard for their life. And to show disregard for the creation of God is in itself worthy of judgment. We can recognize that murder is wrong. That's a pretty black and white concept. But if we watch TV, you turn on the TV, you watch the programs, you watch movie, you even watch the news, you have probably, like me, consumed hundreds if not thousands of different murders through what we watch. We've watched Rambo, Terminator, Braveheart, the body count in these are hundreds alone, just in those movies. People are fascinated with those crime scene investigation documentaries and people host those murder mystery parties. It even sneaks its way into our everyday language. Now I think of all the years that I've played rugby, more than I should have, um, often this language sneaks into what we're saying. Oh, I remember all the times we've been in the changing room, preparing ourselves, amping ourselves up, ready to go out and take on the opposition. And we're in some concrete bunker looking dungeon that they call a changing room. And the boys are all talking and, and the language starts flying. We're going to kill these guys. Like we're going to smash them. We're going to murder them. I'm like, settle down, turn it back. That's a bit extreme. But the language starts going. And it's not that we intend to actually take the life of the people, but, but we're trying to rack ourselves up. I remember being on the field one time and I was playing on the wing, which is right on the edge. And I remember just, I'm like, I want to set up camp in my opposition's head. So I was pointing him out. I was screaming him out. I'm going to kill this guy. Like I'm going to smash him. Like I'm going to hit this guy. This is my BC days, right? Like this is way back in the day. 
But the mother of the guy opposite me was standing on the sideline running, and she's like, if you hit my boy, I'm going to come on to that. I had to explain to her, man, what I mean is I'm going to hurt him as much as I can within the legalities of the game. Like, she thought I was going to go and hit him. It's so funny how our language can be misconstrued sometimes when we I mean, I don't want to hit the guy. I don't want to kill the guy. I don't want to murder him. I don't want to do any of that. But this language so easily slips into what we're doing. And when we use language like this, and when we expose ourselves to media of the type I just spoke about, and the fact that we're simply living in a world where anything seems to go in the name of entertainment, we can begin to become numb to the severity and the atrocity of murder. And before we approach that topic of murder, and more specifically, as Jesus addressed it, anger and hate, I think it's important to understand that at the heart of the matter of murder is the view on the sanctity of life. All life is a gift from God. Like Acts 17, 28 says, For in Him we live and move and have our being. And in the first couple of chapters of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, it speaks about how God created life, plants, animal, and His greatest creation, mankind. Genesis 2 verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Goes that a group of scientists wanted to challenge God, and they said, Let's start with a pile of dirt, and we'll show you how we can create a human. To which God says, That's fine, but you have to make your own dirt. What we can do as people is amazing. In fact, it's phenomenal, the genetic, genetic engineering, the research. We can now help people conceive through IVF. It's amazing what we can do, and yet it is still God, our Creator, that breathes life and brings it all together. And so if God is the giver of life, He is also the only one that has the right to take it away. And to murder is to take someone's life away that we simply didn't have the authority to do. So sorry to all the parents that have used the saying, I brought you into this world and I can take you out of it. You actually don't have the authority to take, although I definitely will still use that. That's one of my favorites and I cannot wait. <laughs> but it's funny, it just slips into our language. I bought you in, I can take you out. No, actually we don't have the authority to do that. You know, we believe that life at every stage is sacred to God. Murder is defined this way, that it's the unlawful, unjust, premeditated killing of one human being by another. It's one person unjustly taking the life of another innocent person. So that's what murder is. And God says that's where the clearly defined line is. Do not cross that line. And for obvious reasons, right? Like our civilization would begin to crumble to dust if we weren't abundantly clear that life should be treated as the greatest treasure. But then Jesus comes in on the topic, and this is so interesting because he only does it for two of them, right? He does it on do not commit adultery, and he does it on do not murder. He quotes the Ten Commandments. He says, you have heard it said, you shall not murder because those who do are subject to judgment. But then he goes on to speak about how anyone who is even angry with a brother or sister is also subject to judgment. It's a really important connection and a reminder that God desires to see pure hearts within His people. And again, at the core of Jesus' words, it's the value of human life. You know, every time I get angry with someone, I'm unleashing my anger on another person. This person was created by God. He's loved by them. He's valued by them. He's so important to them. And so by default, He should be important to me as well. Now, I don't know if anyone has recently found themselves in court facing charges on saying to someone, Raka, <laughs> you probably haven't. But in Jesus' day, what that word meant was empty-headed or full. And in a more scornful and harsh way, it meant you were, that you wish you were never born or better that you were dead. And so when Jesus is speaking in this context, he's actually speaking to a bunch of guys that are so angry with him that shortly after this, they would in fact condemn him to death. These religious leaders, they're not the ones that actually nailed, hammered the nails into his hands and feet 
and yet their anger and their hatred ultimately sentenced him to die. And so if Jesus equates hating someone in our heart to actually murdering someone, it means it's a pretty serious issue that we have to get a handle on. If murder is simply anger towards people created in God's image, then our motorways in the morning are like genocide. You might say, but Frosty, this is unreasonable. There's no way, like anger is a normal human emotion that we've been given. I cannot expect to be expected to not get angry when someone severely disrespects me, when someone robs my house, when someone puts the milk bottle back in the fridge and it's empty, when someone puts milk in my teacup and the tea bag's still in there. You might say, that stuff's worthy of anger. To which I would say, I agree. Like that, maybe not the last two, but that stuff is worthy of anger. But check out Ephesians 4, 26 to 27. It says, And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. And in the NIV version, it says, In your anger, do not sin. It's interesting, right? Because it means you can actually be angry and it not be sin. Anger is sometimes our natural human emotion and our response, but it's allowing that anger to control us that leads to hatred and murder in our heart. The ancient philosopher Aristotle, he once said this. He says, anyone can be angry, that is easy. But to be angry with the right person, to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose, and in the right way, that is not easy. If we're all, to be really honest, probably not many people in this room are really good at managing their anger. And so usually there's one of two ways that we manage it and the way that we respond. Firstly, we might blow up. Right? Some of us deal with our anger by just blowing up and letting it out. We might describe these people as short-tempered or someone having a short wick. It doesn't take much before the bomb explodes. Now, the benefits of the blow-up is at least it's over quickly. It doesn't drag out, it's over quickly. But the obvious negative is that there are casualties and victims along the way. It's like logic and fruit of the Spirit go flying out the window and the emotion of anger that we feel is released onto other people. Secondly, we might bottle it up, Right? Sometimes we just blow up. Most of us probably would say, I'm someone that bottles up my anger. In other words, we don't say anything, but we just let it fester within us. And when asked how you are, you might respond, I'm fine. But everything in your body language and the quivering of your lip makes it pretty obvious. In fact, you're not okay. And the trouble with bottling up our anger is that it starts to leak. Our bottle only has so much capacity. And the leaking looks like unforgiveness. The leaking looks like a fence. When that anger builds up and it starts leaking out, it looks like uh, trying to make someone pay for the way that they treated you. Sometimes that bottled up anger as well eventually gets so full that you just blow up anyway, causing immense harm to you and the people around you. Look, I need you to know it's okay to be angry. But God's challenge and in fact His commandment is to not let anger control us because when it does, it corrupts our heart and that anger turns to hatred And the Bible says that that hatred is just like murder. And so the obvious thing we need to deal with now is not for me to convince you to not go out and kill someone today. But the thing that's probably very prevalent for all of us is how do I address the anger in my heart? If Jesus says these two are like and like and are both deserving of judgment, then we need to sort that out. And so I have a few thoughts this morning on how to manage that within ourselves, addressing the anger in our hearts. First one is this, acknowledge our anger and pause. Pretty obvious, right? To rationalize and move forward in a moment where you are hot with anger is almost impossible. We've all been there. It's like our emotions are in the driver's seat and not sound mindful consideration of the facts. The facts don't matter. It's based on how I feel, which is not a good place to be. 
And often when we get angry, a strong sense of justice rises within us. And we're dead set on setting it straight, even if it hurts other people in the process. And a common thought is, I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. But we end up only actually giving them a piece of our anger. So we have to give ourselves space and time to analyze the anger and figure out how it got there in the first place. If you're angry about something, the best thing you can do is actually just pause. Because it's that moment of pause, it's that few seconds of being still, of breathing, of being still, that separates the emotion of anger from the sin of anger. This is what maturity looks like. Come on, you might be at work and someone blasts an angry email at you and you're like, (laughs) you move your shoulders because you know it's going to help your emailing skills. And you get ready to fire one back without actually taking it in, considering their approach, asking yourself, is what they're saying actually true? Like I just get defensive automatically and you fire back this angry email, that's almost never going to work out for you. But maturity looks like pausing, reflecting, processing the emotions until they're no longer in the driver's seat and then forming your response. Maybe you need to sleep on it that night. Maybe you need to let it sit for a couple of days before you go back. Because if we really want to be people that give life to others and to see our relationships flourish, we have to make decisions to acknowledge our anger and not pretend like it's not there. And it's okay to recognize this yourself. Sometimes you're not a very good reader of your own dials. It's good that we mature in this area. But oftentimes we are the best reader of how we're going and you know when you're angry. And this is why small groups are such a brilliant place to be connected in because it gives you, and there might be a family member as well, it gives you a place just to speak to someone, just to offload it, have someone pray for you to know your journey and tell someone. Acknowledge it and tell someone that you're feeling angry. They say that a problem shared is a problem halved. Sometimes that can be really helpful. James 1, 19 to 20 says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of a man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, in the book of Proverbs, we see there's at least three main ways that usually lead us to be angry. These are injustice, humiliation, and frustration. With injustice, I want to encourage you to try to redirect your anger to the problem and not the people involved in the problem. What brokenness are the perpetrators acting out of? What insecurities have helped direct their behavior? How could I pray for not only the perpetrators of injustice, but also the victims? It's okay to be angry. And actually, sometimes there's this thing called a righteous anger. We can be angry at abuse. We can be angry at neglect. We can be angry at human trafficking. That's okay. But the trick here is to not allow that anger to elevate itself into hatred towards the people involved. Maybe it's injustice that has led you to be angry. Sometimes it's humiliation. When this happens, I'd encourage you to take a moment just to pause and remember that you are who God says you are. Your value, your identity, and your worth are determined by Him and not what others have said about you. Truth is, hurt people hurt people. You've seen that, I've seen that. Sometimes we've been there. When we're hurt, we find ourselves hurting others. And I'm not justifying the behavior of others that humiliate people, but please know that whatever has been said or done to you is far more of a reflection of what they're struggling through than it is on who you are. You are who God says you are. And sometimes it's frustration. And frustration is simply put, it's unmet expectations. Man, I expected my spouse to know better and do better and they didn't and I'm angry. Or why do people not value this thing like I value this thing? Like, I'm so wound up. This thing is so important. Why do people not care like I care? I said in the first service, I'm so thankful we don't all care so much about the same thing. 
because there would be so many other things that didn't get our attention. I'm thankful that in the body of Christ, we all carry these different holy discontents, these different righteous angers for different things. They're all important, but we're not all going to prioritize them the same. And sometimes when we find that something's so important to us and others don't find it as important as we do, we can find ourselves frustrated because we would expect them to and that expectation isn't met. Or we might say, why are the rules at work or at school um, inconsistent when it should be fair for everyone? Understanding the reason that our anger has come about will help us process those emotions. Uh, at our 5 p.m. combined service panel uh, last week that was on, on relationships at our Botany campus, um, you may have been there, you may not have, but Mike Griffiths did something brilliant on the process that our mind goes through on the pathway to sinning. He spoke about specifically in the area of lust. He said, it always just starts with a look. When it comes to lust, it starts with a look. You see what you see, your eyes see what you see, and that's okay. At that point, it's just temptation. But you've got about one or two seconds after that moment to choose your response before that look becomes a thought, and that thought becomes intent, and that intent leads to sin. Well, the same could be said for us about anger. Maybe you're driving along and someone cuts you off on the motorway. You've got to brake suddenly, and that first initial human response is to be angry. Well, we've got one or two seconds to choose how we're going to respond. If you end up chasing that person down, tailgating them, honking your horn aggressively, choosing to escalate the situation, <laughs> you've gone wrong. When this happens to me, now, I'm not high and mighty. I don't get this right every time. Two main things that frustrate me in life are um, unjustifiably slow drivers and slow computers. Just can't deal an area that I'm working, but I try really hard to do this when I'm driving. When someone maybe cuts me off or whatever, they're rushing and they're rude. Um, I try to think what it is that they must be going through. Because we've all been there, right? When we're in a seat, we've got a rush. Like we're behind schedule, we're late to something important. And we kind of get frustrated everyone else that's actually just following. Them. Don't they understand? Like I'm in a rush, they need to get out of my way. And I try to reverse it and say, I wonder what they're rushing towards. I wonder what sort of morning they've been through. And I like the idea that their rushed and frantic morning might be made a little bit easier by my gracious approach. So before honking the horn and, and, and going crazy, I choose to just breathe. I take a moment. I'm, I don't have to honk the horn right now. Let me just process what's going on. And I try to consider what a blessing my response might be. We have to acknowledge our anger and then pause. Second thing is this. We need to humble ourselves. And part of humbling ourselves is actually having a healthy self-respect. And self-respect means I can humble myself to consider that my anger may or may not be justified. And the problem that we often have, have is we swing really far to one end of the pendulum. For some in this room, you think so lowly of yourself that you always take on all the blame and you think your life is just an inconvenience to the lives around, around you. That is not true. You are extremely valuable and the world is better with you in it. And yet sometimes we think so highly of ourselves and we think that we're always right. And when we're angry at someone, it's obviously because they are wrong and we ignore all of our own personal traumas, triggers and hurts that might be turning a minor situation into a bigger one in our mind or heart. Philippians 2 verse 3 to 4 says, don't be selfish, don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You know, some anger is justified. We're not saying let's like suppress and ignore the human emotion of anger. And some initial responses of anger are okay. But no form of hate towards any person at any time is ever okay. Jesus said the one who is angry is just as much subject to judgment as the one that actually carries out murder. But the same 
verse clarifies that it's the sort of anger that has elevated and escalated to the point where you would say raka to someone. Now, we don't use that word in today's language, but it means to show disregard to them to the point where you would wish harm upon them. Proverbs 18.21 says, The tongue has the power of life or death, and those who love it will eat of its fruit. Bible also says that it's out of an overflow of our heart that the mouth speaks. You often see this in people that blow up, right? And sometimes you see it in those that bottle up and eventually blow up. Eventually all of these harsh words are said and it's kind of like, oh, okay, that's what was actually on your heart that's making its way out. So yeah, we want to deal with the root first, right? We actually want to deal what's going on in here and then the fruit will change. But we don't have to wait for the root to be fully addressed before we can start addressing that surface level stuff in our language. It's actually not that hard to begin changing the way that we speak to people. Now, some of you would have experienced this like I did as you were growing up. You, you know, use all this abrasive language when you're young. Like, oh, I hate this and I hate that. And parents would be like, hate, you know, is a strong word. Hate is a very strong word. And I remember when I was young thinking, that's why I've used it. It was on purpose. Man, as I look back and as I reflect, I realize there is so much wisdom in that challenge. It doesn't sound like much, but hate is a very strong word. And I honestly think, myself included, we just need to rid it from our language. I do it all the time. I said, man, I hate the Crusaders, you know? Like, but the truth is, I do not hate the Crusaders. I don't hate those guys that play rugby in Christchurch who I've never met. Like, how could I hate those guys? I just really don't like that they keep winning. But let's not normalize hating people. I think we need to remove it from our language. You don't have to like things. You don't have to agree with things. You don't even have to like all the people around you. But we are called to love them. We are called to speak life and to treat all life as precious and valuable. So humbling ourselves is a good part in the process of controlling our anger. Third and final part is this. Choose to love and forgive. Keys, you can join me. First Corinthians 13, 4-7. You may have heard this one. Uh, if you've ever been to a Christian wedding, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. You know, but it's just as much the Word of God as any other scripture that we read. Don't let the fact that you've heard it a million times um, distract you from what God is saying here. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. You know what this passage tells me? I hope it tells you this as well, that we can't hold on to our anger forever. Instead, the way of love is actually one that doesn't have a scorecard. As Steve Green said in our panel last week at the 5 p.m. as well, he said, if in our relationships we're asking ourselves who won that argument, we've both lost. You know, I've seen a lot of people over the last couple of years standing so strongly on their side of the truth. And sadly, it's led to a whole lot of hurt, offense, anger, and bitterness. They're fighting for what they believe to be a righteous cause. But for some people, their stand has no longer been about love, but actually just about being right. I've seen people lose amazing friends because there was no room for a difference of opinion. Is it possible to be on the other side of an opinion, to sit on the other side of the fence and still love one another? Like, could we see parenting differently and yet still love one another? Could we believe differently about the church and still love one another? Could we believe differently about politics, which we already do, but could we do that and still love one another? You know, over the last few years, uh, this is a generalization, but let's just say, I feel like it's fair to say, 
we've all been involved in far too many conversations about vaccines. Man, what a, a long few years that has been, have been, and we've all been in many conversations about them. You know, for Darcy and I, some of our closest friends have held different opinions, and these have been strongly held opinions, and yet because we've approached all of those conversations in love, our friendships are still healthy and whole. You know, I'm so glad that we're building the church together. I am so glad that not everyone in this church thinks like me. That would be a very scary place. We do not want that. We want this beautiful mixture of opinions and thoughts and approaches and beliefs. You know, we agree on the main things. We agree on the central things. And the other stuff, we have liberty and freedom. I'm so glad that we're building the church together and that in this last season, I know this is not everyone's situation, but for Darcy and I, we've always tried our best to approach every one of those conversations with love because what the enemy could have used for evil to tear apart friendships and relationships, he's been disarmed when we approach every conversation in love. And understand actually, we can disagree even on the most extreme things and yet we can still show love and respect for one another. Love doesn't always have to find agreement. In fact, sometimes we'll never even know if we were wrong or right in the end. But despite what it is that divides us as people, there is so much more that unites us, especially in the church where Christ brings us together as family. Of Romans 12, 19, it says, Dear friends, never avenge yourselves. Leave that to God. For He has said that He will repay those who deserve it. Don't take the law into your own hands. When we have been wronged, hurt, or abused, which... We've all been there at some point. We all have to engage in the hardest decision a human being could ever possibly make. It's forgiveness. Man, that's hard. Especially when you know it wasn't an accident. Especially when you know someone has purposefully tried to harm you. And we reason and we wrestle with God. Yeah, like I get forgiveness, God, but obviously not in this case. (laughs) And the same could be said about us before our God. There's so much that we've done. So many times we've turned our back. So many times we thought we knew better than the Word of God. And yeah, we want to align ourselves here, but God, I think you're a bit out of date on that one. And and this pride sneaks in and we turn our back on God. And yet despite all of that, God still always has enough grace for us. Ephesians 4 verse 31 to 32 says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. You know, I truly believe that we can't forgive and show grace to others in its fullness until we've been able to experience just how life-changing that grace and forgiveness is ourselves. I obviously think of the grace of God in this circumstance. And what I'm not saying is that Christians are the only ones that are able to show forgiveness. I'm not saying Christians are the only ones that are able to show grace and compassion to people. But because I do believe every person was made by God, every single human being on the planet was created to be a Christian, to be a Christ follower, to know the God who made them. I do believe to forgive and show grace in its fullness, we have to have experienced that first. And I'm so thankful that while there's people in this room from varying degrees of life, maybe you've actually taken the life of someone in this room. I'm not going to assume that that's definitely not the case. If so, hopefully just a few. <laughs> if, you, yeah, if you're doing that, stop it. Um, uh, but still, you need to hear if that is you, that God's grace is enough for you. 
we turn our heart towards Him, His grace is sufficient. He can forgive us, wipe our slate clean. And we might say, man, how could God forgive that sort of behavior? Because that's how good He is. That's how much He loves us. That's how much He would go to the cross to take the entire punishment of the sin of the world onto His shoulders so that we could walk free today. That is fascinating. And yet then there's us in the room that haven't actually taken someone's life, but you have had hatred and anger in your heart. And God would say, that's worthy of judgment just as much. And so we also need forgiveness and grace just as much as the person who has taken someone's life.